So we are working our way through a series of topics that are contested in our culture. Uh, they also involve an often overlooked reality that we are embodied creatures. So throughout this series, I've been encouraging us to think deeply about our anthropology. Your anthropology is how you answer this question, what does it mean to be a human being? And um, obviously we're having some pretty major technical difficulties this morning. But your anthropology is how you answer the question, what does it mean to be a human being? And we all have an anthropology because we all have beliefs about what it means to be a human being. Now, this week we are in part two of a conversation about transgender identities. Last week we homed in on one question. If someone experiences incongruity between their biological sex and their internal sense of self, then which one determines who you are and why? Remember, in our culture, we make a distinction between biological sex, or your body, and your gender identity, which is your internal sense of self as male, female, both, or neither. And last week we said that within a biblical frame, if someone experiences gender incongruity, that your body determines who you are. This week, we want to address the question of how do we care for people who experience this? Or if this is your experience, how should you respond? Let me say, uh, first of all, that I am not a healthcare professional. I'm not a counselor or a psychologist, and I've never experienced gender dysphoria, so I don't have any idea how difficult this is for people. Um, and I do think that any response needs to include a wide circle of wise, qualified, and caring people. What I am is a Christian minister, and I recognize that in many people's eyes that instinctively disqualifies me from saying anything about this. I get that. Um, but that instinct also highlights the reality that our culture frames this conversation and many others as being all about how we can live happy, healthy, flourishing lives in this world right now and only in this world right now. One of the amazing things about the gospel is that uh, it focuses not only on relieving suffering in this world, but also on a future transformation that goes beyond this world. Have you ever wondered if your experiences of suffering um, might be part of something God is doing in your life that goes beyond this world? What does that mean? Especially for... Um, our transgender friends, and how the church might come alongside them. Let's see three things in this passage. Wow, that's small. <laughs> but I'll read it out to you. We want to see first, there is a, a unique tension. Secondly, there is a living sacrifice. And third, there is a, um, an authentic love. Okay? So first, there's a unique tension here. Uh, we all know instinctively that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. What's happening in Israel right now is a, an all-too-tragic reminder of that. But the whole storyline of the Bible revolves around God's promise that one day he's going to rescue us from evil and renew this world. 
Not destroy this world and carry us away to some disembodied heaven, but renew this material world by uniting it with heaven. So uh, Paul talks about that promise here in this passage. Um, In verse 2 he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, that word world is literally the word age. When Paul says, don't be conformed to this age, he's reminding us that we live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. But when he talks about being transformed, he's reminding us that there's a a future age that is coming into this world and changing this present age, a future age that's going to come when there will be no more evil, suffering, sickness, sin, or death. And what's more, that age to come has already broken into this age through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, theologians have a term for this. It's called the already and the not yet. In other words, this age to come has already broken into this world, into this present age, but its ultimate fulfillment is not yet. We live in the overlap of the ages. And that creates a unique tension in the Christian life. Um, Life in the already and the not yet is like being the rope in a tug of war. You're being pulled in two different directions. So on the one hand, um, we set our hope on the age to come and the transforming work that God is already doing in our lives. And yet... Um, it can be easy to focus so much on that future hope that we end up ignoring the suffering and injustice of this world. So that's why, on the other hand, historically, Christians have been very committed to addressing suffering and injustice in this world. So when Paul says things like, love one another with brotherly affection, or contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, uh, the first Christians took those words seriously. Did you know that Christians started the first hospitals, the first orphanages, the first welfare systems? Christians uh, rescued babies from trash heaps. They literally sacrificed their lives to care for victims of the plague. They also welcomed slaves and women and prostitutes who were basically sex slaves into the church and empowered them. The challenge with this, however, is that All of our focus on this world and relieving suffering could tend to make us maybe forget uh, about God's future transformation and end up thinking that it's up to us to create this utopian world where everybody can live their best lives now. In fact, uh, modern Western society in particular is a very therapeutic, technological society. Therapeutic means that we seek to escape suffering at all costs, because in our culture, suffering can play no meaningful role in your life. Suffering is just an interruption to your best life now. We're also a very technological society. Uh, If anything is causing you suffering, or if anything is preventing you from living your best life now, then there's an app for that, or a pill, or a hack, or a therapy, or a surgical procedure. Do you see the challenge here? Life in the already and the not yet means living between those two tensions. We don't want to lose sight of either one, but try to hold them together. Now, please understand, 
I am not saying that we should not avail ourselves of the tremendous advances in medicine, science, mental health, and technology. Those things are gifts. The challenge is to live in the tension of the already and the not yet without trying to resolve it. Because on the one hand, we are never going to experience ultimate healing in this world. But on the other hand, we are not without hope because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Now, with all of that in mind, what does that mean for our conversation about transgender identities? Well, first of all, last week, uh, if you might remember, we saw that no one knows for sure what causes gender incongruence. Um, we also mentioned that we need to be really careful about the language we use with this. Words like disability or disorder or dysphoria can feel stigmatizing to transgender people. In fact, many trans-affirming scholars say that the distress uh, transgender people feel is because of what's called minority stress. Minority stress is the stigma and the oppression that many minorities feel, and it can lead to very real mental health challenges. However, that still doesn't explain the gender incongru incongruence itself, or especially the urgency that many people feel to transition. Um, in fact, we often hear that narrative in our culture, transition or suicide. Those are your only two choices. So for instance, there was a podcast earlier this year called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. In one of the episodes, they interviewed two transgender individuals who not only shared their disappointment with J.K. Rowling, they also shared their experience of uh, gender dysphoria. Uh, one of them uh, was a 17-year-old transmasculine man named Noah. Noah had top surgery when he was 16 years old, and the interviewer asked him, what do you think would have happened if you'd had to wait to have that surgery? And Noah, incredibly articulate person, he said, I've thought about that a lot. Transitioning didn't cure any of my disorders, but it made everything so much easier. Part of my journey was that I wanted to punish my body because it was causing me so much pain. I just felt so miserable that I couldn't bear to be alive in the body I was in. I personally believe that if I had had to wait longer, I would have attempted suicide and I might have been successful. Now, when I heard this interview, man, I was captivated by Noah's vulnerability and especially his description of the pain and misery he felt. I can't imagine what that would be like. And as I thought about this interview in Noah's words, it's, it's caused me to think a lot about this tension between the already and the not yet. Because on the one hand, Christians are called to compassion and healing and relief from suffering. But on the other hand, if you've been pursuing healing for years, but haven't experienced it, at what point do we surrender our desire for healing to the possibility that maybe God wants to do a deeper work in our lives that might involve embracing some level of suffering. That's a question for every Christian, not just transgender people, but whatever that line is, whatever that point is, it involves our bodies. And that leads to our next point. Paul has shown us a unique tension, but secondly, we see here a living sacrifice. 
Um, one of the big things we've been seeing throughout this series is that our body is a sacred site. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that the Christian's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And um, he talks about that big time in this passage. Notice uh, that he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, two things to notice here. First, a living sacrifice does not necessarily mean go out and get yourself killed for the gospel. It's not a one-time sacrifice. A better translation of this would be an ongoing sacrifice. In other words, Christian discipleship is a life in which we are continually surrendering our agendas, our goals, and our preconceptions about what's best for us to say yes to God's vision for our life. Second, Paul says that the way we do that is to present your bodies. Whatever God's vision is for our life, the way we live it out in this world is through our bodies. Now, what does all of this mean for how the church responds to the transgender community? Well, first, let me share with you, I have never studied so much for one sermon series as I have for this sermon series. But the more I've studied, the more complex these topics have become, especially this one. So I want to be really cautious and careful. There's a lot we don't know. But that said, let me share um, some thoughts with you about where I'm at right now. Um, uh, we talked last week about Mark Yarhouse. Mark Yarhouse is a, um, a Christian psychologist who specializes in gender and sexuality. Mark Yarhouse offers uh, three primary frames that he says Christians tend to view uh, transgender experience through. And the first frame is what he calls the integrity frame. The integrity frame tends to emphasize the sacredness of being created male and female, and it looks at cross-sex identification as a moral concern. Now, the strength of this frame is it is incredibly clear about the goodness of being created male and female. But one of the challenges of this frame is that it oftentimes tends to urge people to conform to rigid gender stereotypes, which, as we saw last week, are constantly changing. And not only that, many of our culture's gender stereotypes are deeply distorted and therefore very damaging to both girls and boys. By the way, the Barbie movie is a really good picture of that. But not only that, another struggle with the integrity frame is that it often puts a lot of pressure on people to experience, quote, healing. Uh, studies have shown that gender dysphoria tends to resolve for most children who experience it. But if it extends into adulthood, resolution is rare. And yet the integrity frame will often put pressure on people that they need to experience healing from gender dysphoria. Um, so if on the one hand, our culture's narrative is transition or suicide, uh, Preston Sprinkle, another very helpful writer, says that oftentimes integrity churches have a narrative that says, just stop it. They have a tendency to see trans people as being willfully sinful and, 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 and they just need to stop rebelling. 
So for instance, um, in one of his books, Preston Sprinkle tells the story of a friend of his named Leslie. Leslie was born female, but grew up with an ongoing experience of gender dysphoria. Leslie also grew up in the church and a deep love for God. But Leslie had no one to talk about any of this stuff with, and it led to depression and suicidal thoughts. Eventually, in desperation, Leslie uh, went to the pastor of the church looking for guidance, but when the pastor heard about Leslie's struggles, he ushered Leslie to the back door of the church and told him to get out and never come back. The integrity frame is, excels in, um, in clarity, but oftentimes, not always, that church is an egregious example, but oftentimes the integrity frame can struggle with compassion. Secondly, the diversity frame uh, tends to see gender variance as a um, naturally occurring part of God's good creation, and therefore it's something that should be celebrated. Now, the strength of this frame is that it offers trans people identity and community, and every human being needs a healthy sense of identity and a welcoming sense of community. The struggle uh, with this frame, in my opinion, is that it does struggle to offer a compelling interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2, which talks about creation, and also Genesis 3, which explains why this world is not the way it's supposed to be. So the strength of the diversity frame is its community, but I think it struggles with clarity. Lastly, the disability frame sees gender variance as a result of the fall, and therefore it's a non-normative but also non-moral reality that deserves compassion. Now, the, one of the challenges with this frame, and we mentioned this last week, uh, is that language like disability or disorder or dysphoria uh, can feel stigmatizing to trans people, so we need to be really sensitive about that. But one of the strengths of this frame is the compassion that it's able to offer trans people. Um, and so, you know, this is important because, uh, you know, as we seek to come alongside people, it's important that we're able to offer them real compassion in this world. That the, the real strength of this frame is in its ability to offer compassion. Now, um, as we move along, one of the things that we need to think about is what does all of this mean for us? You know, um, as we think about these different frames, we might all be in different frames in this place, and, and we need to think about what it means to come together as a church in all of this. But I, I want to encourage us um, to think about what would it look like to be a church that is able to combine the best of these frames, the clarity of the integrity frame, the community of the diversity frame, and the compassion of the disability frame to combine all of those together in one compelling vision of Christian discipleship for all of us. Uh, some of us might say, wow, that sounds um, really good in theory, but is there anything here that can offer us practical guidance about what that looks like in practice? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen um, that... Uh, We've been in a, a unique tension. There's a living sacrifice, but lastly, there's an authentic love. By the way, and forgive me this morning, obviously things are going on, let's back up. Thank you, Ibrahim. Um, as we think about how to respond to transgender people, some of the best counsel I've heard 
you know, if you want to know in all the study that I've been doing, you know, one of my biggest takeaways has been from Christian voices from like people like Mark Yarhouse and um, Preston Sprinkle. Um, if you find yourself in a relationship with trans people, if somebody tells you that they're trans, one of the best things you can do is just realize that that's an opportunity to listen to somebody and to learn from them. It's an opportunity for relationship. It's an invitation to listen and to learn without judgment and without immediately feeling the need to correct people. So if somebody um, invites you into that kind of relationship, some of the, the best things you can do, we might say it like this, that relationships are an invitation to withhold preconception and to walk with a person. Relationships are an invitation to withhold preconceptions and to walk with a person. So if somebody's inviting you into that, take them up on it. Yes, there are culture wars. Yes, there are battling ideologies in this world. But beyond all of that are people with radically different stories and experiences. Mark Yarhouse puts it like this. He says, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. We need to hold on to the reality that everybody's different and, and, and embrace the opportunity to walk with people, to withhold preconceptions, and to learn from people. So like I said, if we could in, embrace the very best of each of these frames, uh, the clarity, the community, and the compassion, and combine it into one compelling vision of Christian discipleship, I would love to see that. But like we said, what would that look like in practice? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen a unique tension. We've also seen a living sacrifice. But lastly, Paul shows us an authentic love in this passage. You know, uh, Romans 12 is an incredibly famous passage. Uh, many scholars point out that verses 9 through 16 are a multifaceted picture of what love looks like in action. And it begins uh, in verse 9. Paul says, let love be genuine. Many of you are probably aware that the Bible has different words for love in the Greek language. Words like eros or philos or agape. Anyone want to take a guess which, which one Paul is using here? Agape, right. Agape is a love that sacrifices itself for the well-being of others. So when Paul says, let agape be genuine, he is not saying have a genuine feeling of agape. He's saying, let the way you express agape be genuine. Or we could say, let agape be authentic. You know, over the past few weeks, we've been talking about authenticity, Authenticity is this idea that you must listen to the call of your own heart. And whatever your heart says, you have a moral duty to yourself to express that call to the world around you. Authenticity, in our culture, authenticity means listen to the call of your own heart. So even Moana, who heard the call of the ocean, right? Only to find out that the call isn't out there at all. It's inside you. In our culture, authenticity means listen to the call of your own heart. But gospel authenticity means listen to the call of God. Because only God can tell you who you really are. And that's especially important because we live in a world where things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so 
That includes our bodies, that includes our hearts, that includes our desires. Just because my heart desires something does not mean it's good for me. So Paul, throughout this, these next several verses, he goes on to give us a, a definition of what authentic love looks like in practice. The very first thing he says is, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Authentic love means growing in moral and spiritual wisdom. So if you find yourself walking with people and listening to them, if you build enough trust with them, you might actually find yourself being invited into a circle of friends that are being asked to help that person consider whether or not they should transition. What would you do in that situation? Transitioning typically occurs at a few different levels. Uh, first level is social transitioning, which means adopting uh, clothing or hairstyles or behavior or the pronouns of whatever gender somebody might identify with. The next level is hormonal transitioning. That means taking hormones of the opposite sex. And um, the last level would be surgical transitioning, which is where somebody uh, surgically changes their body. But if you've built enough trust with somebody that they actually invite you into a conversation like this, what do you do? Again, by far, the best counsel I've heard is from Christian voices like Mark Yarhouse and Preston Sprinkle. Preston Sprinkle puts it like this. He says, I can't emphasize this point enough. We must give trans people space to wrestle with the ethical aspects of transitioning. He goes on to say, a top-down, compassionless approach will most likely push people away. We need to hold our views with humility, graciously prioritizing relationship. We can't force feed our views to others, no matter how biblical they may be. So with that in mind, what would it look like to apply this to a few different questions in our culture? Well, first, when it comes to children, as we've seen, uh, gender dysphoria tends to resolve in most kids. Therefore, I have grave concerns about encouraging children to transition or what's called gender-affirming care, especially uh, when we think about things like hormones and puberty blockers, which can have uh, very serious health consequences. I think we also should take uh, the impact of social media into account, and I know this is really controversial, but there's a lot of data on this. Social media impacts us, not just adults, but especially young people and especially young girls. I think love and wisdom would, would be, uh, it urge us to take this into account. Secondly, uh, if you find yourself in a relationship with an adult who is considering transitioning, let me say a couple of things about this. First, I think the Bible offers us really compelling reasons not to transition. And listen, again, I want to be so careful, and I want to be open. We, there's just so much we don't know. But as far as I've been able to see at this point, that if somebody experiences in gender incongruity um, between their biological sex and their internal sense of self, it's, it's your body that tells you who you are, male or female. And, and that means, if that's the case, that um, living in the tension of the already and the not yet is going to mean presenting our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. That's going to be really painful for a lot of people, which means, number two, that we need to do everything we can to relieve as much suffering as we can and to provide as much love, welcome, support, 
care and community for people as we can. Because this is going to be hard for people. Um, in fact, you know, um, not only does the Bible call us to, to hold on to the truth and to advocate for the truth in this world, the Bible commands us to be compassionate to the marginalized, to be uh, somebody who advocates for the oppressed and the weak in society. And so, for instance, if, um, if certain levels of social transitioning, in other words, adopting maybe certain kinds of clothing or hairstyle, helps relieve distress for people who are really trying hard to avoid hormonal or surgical transitioning, then I would have a really hard time telling them, no, you must conform to these rigid gender stereotypes that are going to change in a few years anyway and um, are probably deeply distorted to begin with. I, I just want to urge us to be careful and generous and compassionate with people while we hold on to the clarity of Scripture. Um, now, listen, we're running out of time. There are a lot of questions. We can't even begin to scratch the surface of all the questions like bathrooms and sports and all the other stuff. But let me mention just one more question. When it comes to pronouns, our frame is going to impact us. So for instance, if you are in the integrity frame, you might really struggle with using someone's preferred pronouns because it's going to feel like compromising the truth to you. But if you're in the diversity frame, uh, that might feel like affirming the truth to you. We're all in different frames. And in verse 13, Paul tells us that we should seek to show hospitality. That part of what it means to be the church is that we show hospitality to one another, even in the midst of our different frames. So personally, I'm more in the disability frame, although I would prefer to call it the not the way it's supposed to be frame. But that means for me... Um, I use people's pronouns if that's what they want. And Jesus is my model here because that's the gospel. Instead of um, demanding that people meet me where I'm at, I believe the gospel calls me to go out and meet people where they're at because God did not hold himself up in heaven demanding that we be perfect and holy and righteous enough to ascend to where he is. The gospel is that God took a body to come and meet us where we're at. When Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, that does not mean that that's something we have to do in order to get God's love. You don't have to pull yourself together and obey a bunch of rules to get God to love you. God has already lavished his agape love on us through Jesus. Because on the cross, Jesus presented his body as the ultimate sacrifice the ultimate once and for all sacrifice because on the cross, Jesus conquered for all time all evil, suffering, sickness, sin, and death. On the cross, Jesus was torn apart by our sin so that we could live in the tension of the already and the not yet without being torn apart. Dear ones, the only way that we can present our bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice is if we know, and I mean really know, that God's call on our lives is good. And the only way you can really know that is by looking at Jesus on the cross. When you gaze upon his dying love for you, that gives you a truly authentic identity that nothing can touch because it doesn't depend on you. It also uh, calls us into a community of authentic love that is able to 
abhor what is evil and cling to the good, that is able to show hospitality and that is able to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, especially when they feel like they're being torn apart by the tension of the already and the not yet. You know, um, when that pastor uh, told Preston Sprinkle's friend Leslie to leave the church and never come back, Leslie never came back until 18 years later, uh, Leslie's wife, Sue, tragically died in a fire. Leslie was devastated, but they were also looking for a church to do uh, Sue's funeral. And so Leslie called the, this church that Sue had been volunteering at. It also happened to be one of the most conservative churches in the area. But when Leslie called and the pastor picked up the phone, Leslie said, hi, my name is Leslie and my wife Sue just died. And we're lesbians, but I was wanting to find out if you might be willing to do my wife's funeral. The pastor did not say, well, let me think about that. He didn't say, well, let me make sure that you understand where we stand on LGBTQ issues. No, he said, we would be honored to. In fact, he went on to say, you must be truly grieving right now. I can't imagine what that's like. Leslie, would you let us pay for the, the, for the costs and take care of all the details? Leslie, would you please let us love you through this pain? That church's authentic embodied love was the beginning of Leslie's journey back to the church, back to faith, and back to Jesus. Friends, can we offer the same kind of love to everybody that comes through our doors or is out there in the world, especially the LGBTQ community? We can, because Jesus already lavished the same kind of agape love on us. Would you pray with me? Abba, we thank you um, for all of your gifts, Father, for the wondrous um, advances in medicine and science and mental health, Father, for all your compassion that is poured out in this world. But Father, we thank you even more uh, that all of those things are signposts of the true transformation, the ultimate healing that is one day coming when you come back and make all things new. Lord, we look to that day when all things will be made new again, when there will be no more evil, suffering, sickness, sin, or death. And we, we cry out for that day to come. But Father, in the meantime, we pray that you would help us to live faithfully in the midst of of the tension of the already and the not yet. Lord, that we would be diligent, that our labor would not be in vain, Father, but that we would commit ourselves to relieving as much suffering and injustice in this world as we can. And Father, we pray especially that when it comes to our friends in the LGBTQ community, Lord, that you would help us as a church to love our neighbors well, to love our friends well, Father, and to commit ourselves to compassion and healing and relief of suffering for them as we walk alongside them, listen to them, love them, and welcome them, Father. Lord, we pray for everyone in this church, in this room right now, uh, in the things that we've been talking about over these last few weeks describes part of their experience. Father, there are people in this room right now that are seeking to follow you faithfully and to live according to your word. Would you strengthen them, 
according to your Holy Spirit, Father. And would you help us as a church to come alongside them and offer them all of our love, all of our support, and all of our care. Father, we present our bodies and all of our lives to you as living sacrifices. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us, that we might follow you faithfully in this world as we wait for the renewal of all things. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.